everybody. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. And look, we think of ourselves as rational beings, right? We believe that when we make decisions, we weigh the evidence and we sort through it. We throw out the bullshit and we base everything we believe on pure rational reasoning. But that's not actually how we form beliefs or opinions. Human knowledge formation doesn't take place in a senate of toga-wearing neurons arriving at final correct conclusions. First of all, neurons are, they can't wear clothes. They don't make clothes that small. But more importantly, humans aren't built to respond to the world like perfect scientists or even mediocre scientists. Our knowledge and decisions are based on the opaque, somewhat random processes of our messy, messy brains. Let me just give you one example. Even just the order in which we're presented information influences what we believe. The information we receive earlier gets more weight than the information we receive later. Our guest today did a study on this, which asked people to make a relatively neutral internet search for activated charcoal. Now, you might have heard of activated charcoal. It's pretty similar to the stuff you use on the barbecue. It's actually pretty useful if you overdose on pills and end up at the ER. It's good for that purpose, and it can save your life in that case. You'd think that would be enough for people, but no, there's also a pseudoscientific fact going around where people are trying to use it to cut down on their body odor, clear their acne, and in a triumph of counterintuition, people are using this coal product to brighten their teeth. It does none of these things. This is just a pseudoscientific wellness fad. But in the study, when people started searching for activated charcoal, they were undecided about its benefits at first. But after clicking on just a few search results, people went from undecided to 50-50, and then finally to unabashed believers in the the health benefits of coal. The search results presented a positive spin on activated charcoal that was out of line with actual science. It was irrational, yet people followed along because that was the information they saw first. If the search results would have presented a more accurate spin on activated charcoal, they would have formed different opinions. The point is, we're not really as discerning and rational as we want. We're more like piggies at the informational trough. You know, we form our beliefs and opinions out of whatever crap is fed to us. What we see first, we believe first. Here's another way to imagine this dynamic. Uh, picture Twitter, right? Imagine there's a spat between two presidential candidates. <laughs> Difficult, I know. The candidates are arguing over the contents of a private conversation they had a couple years ago. Now, it's impossible for us to have direct knowledge of what's happening. So on Twitter, your understanding of what happened, your emotional feeling about it, your belief about what went down is likely to be based on which candidate's framing of the dispute you saw first. And it could be right, could be wrong, but your certainty about your rightness is no guarantee that you are actually right. You are profoundly influenced by which one came to you initially. And this is just one of 10 bajillion potential instances in which your good faith efforts to seek the truth might lead you into error because your brain works far more messily and far more rationally than you'd like to believe. The truth is that human knowledge isn't perfect or permanent. It's an ongoing attempt to approximate what is true in the world and it is shaped by an endless stream of random-ass factors. And to help us understand how human beings learn, how we form knowledge and beliefs, our guest today is Celeste Kidd. She's a professor of psychology who heads up the Kid Lab at UC Berkeley. Please welcome Celeste Kidd. 
Uh, Celeste, thank you so much for being here. So I want to tell people how we met. You came to see, I was doing my show, Mind Parasites Live, which is a show, a uh, comedy show I was touring in 2019. That was an hour all about the uh, these weird biological parasites that control their hosts' minds and the cultural parasites that control our minds and how we're not really, we don't have free will in the way we believe we do. And you came to see that show. I did. I did. And I came to see that show because of your uh, Twitter account. Oh, just because of my tw- oh my excellent Twitter account your that excellent I, Twitter that account. I pretty much only used to tweet about shows. Uh, no, no, you you also tweeted uh, some uh, very nuanced understanding of uh, some some I would say anti-feminist comments that a certain science communicator uh, had recently relayed. Oh, okay. I appreciate. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah that's uh, well. Every so often, I like to. Get out on a limb and say, I can I can say a little something yeah. <laughs> that's in the cultural consciousness um, to uh, to push back uh, and and shape things the way that I think they should be shaped. But I do that very judiciously. Um, but you, thank you for saying so. But you came to uh, you came to the show and you found that the material in the show intersected with your work to a certain extent. Right. That's correct. And as a result of that, we're now. Sort of informally working together a little bit. Like you asked me to help you out on some of your on some of your research in a way that I'm still understanding exactly how you want me, a comedian, to contribute. But we've had a couple phone calls and you've bounced ideas off of me. Yeah, yeah, you've been you've been invaluable. I was like, that's how science works. So like you're you're doing it right now. Really? Uh, yes. Yeah, you've been doing it for 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 years and just didn't realize. I've it. been doing science the whole time. You've been doing the science the whole time. Uh, you had a uh, novel hypotheses that uh, were things that were in the domain that we were currently working on. And uh, we were very impressed. Like that was science. That's, that's, that's step one. That's the hard part of science actually uh, is generating novel ideas for things that you might be able to test. So uh, I would say you are full on in the lab. You are a full on research scientist. That's what, that's what we do. Oh my gosh. (laughs) You're you're blowing me away right now. Box checked. Uh, I hope my parents are listening to this because Folks might know about me. All, my entire family is scientists, except for me. I'm the only uh, dropout with a bachelor's instead of a PhD. So maybe they'll uh, uh, I'll finally get a little bit of credibility come Thanksgiving time. <laughs> for sure. I, I think I think the further along you go in academia, the like less respect people have for the actual degrees. So uh, that's like inconsequential. Nobody cares um, uh, what, what what degree you have. It's it's the ideas that you have and your ability to execute them. Wow. Uh, and your ability to. Uh, uh, critically evaluate evidence. That's what we do, and that's what you've been doing for um, many years now. So I do my best. I, I don't have, you know, I'm a dilettante about it. I don't have time to fully, under, I get the evidence as best I can, you know, and I try to try to bring it to the people through comedy. But you're the person generating the evidence and generating the study. So you, right. you have a lab at Berkeley, correct? I do. And you study knowledge formation, among other things, in humans. Correct. That is what we do. So tell me what you've found. Well, what's your what's your big picture insight that you feel that you have gotten? Because we think, of, as I was saying in the intro, we think of ourselves as being rational beings who we we uh, weigh the evidence and consider, and then we we Im- and we use that to come to a conclusion, and that is the knowledge or beliefs that we have. Um, you study that. Is that true? <laughs> that that uh, is. Not as true as I think it feels like it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I've learned anything about how people operate, I've learned that um, there's not the knowledge in the way that I used to envision it. I used to think about uh, what infants were doing as uh, 
figuring out, given their observations and experiences in the world, what's true. They come to knowledge, and once you have that knowledge, you like get to keep it for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I now appreciate that um, much more than um, uh, is um, the way that people think of it. Everything is beliefs. All of the knowledge that you think that you possess uh, is your best guess given what you've experienced in the world. Mm. And you're never done, uh, even for concrete things. Uh, I know what the word cup means. I use the word cup. And um, you might think that I have acquired the concept of cup. It's done. That knowledge is set. I'm going to use that for life. Uh, (laughs) But that's not really how it works. Uh, Every time I encounter a cup, I am updating my conceptual representation of what counts as a cup. And if I move to a place that has wider cups, uh, every cup that I encounter, (laughs) I will gradually morph my concept uh, in order to accommodate this this change in the environment. So uh, there is not really any such thing as as knowledge proper. Um, uh, Instead, uh, everything is a belief and you're doing your best to approximate what's true in the world. Uh, And it's it's an ongoing process that starts in infancy, but uh, continues, uh, hopefully, if things are going well until you die. There's no such thing as as knowledge. Meaning that uh, you're trying to approximate what is true in the world, but it's always your best guess. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 really. I think of it as as probabilistic expectations. Uh, wow. Even for things like language that we share, uh, it turns out that when you probe it, when you dig in a little bit deeper, uh, it is. Um, uh, not as shared as you might as you might expect. Uh, so when I use a word, uh, you use a word, you might expect that we have the same concept in mind, but when you probe it, it looks like that's that's not really true. It's like we both have slightly different concepts because uh, we're inferring our concept based on our unique set of experiences, the particular sets of data that we've seen, uh, and what I've, I've experienced and what you've experienced are two different sets of things. Are there cases where when people are coming to these beliefs that are that would seem non-rational to us. Like the reason that I end up with a particular belief is not because, well, for instance, you talked about infants when they're like discovering the world. And I almost imagined that, yeah, our conception of them is that they're little enlightenment philosophers. They're like, oh, solidity. I see. Like the, like this object can't move through this. So things must be extended in space. All right. Right. I, you like, they're, they're rationally figuring it out. They're not doing that. What are they doing instead? And what are some of the weirder ways that we acquire our beliefs and knowledge? Yeah. So uh, I love the example of uh, the baby as philosopher. Uh, (laughs) I I also want to say it's possible that they're doing something like that, but really we don't know. Um, uh, We could get into uh, why we don't know, uh, but the, the short answer is Everything that we know about infants, we are inferring based on uh, our best guesses as to why they are showing the particular visual interest that they are. If they yeah. look longer at one thing versus another, uh, we try to guess why. Uh, so you can't you can't pull them on what they believe. You can't you can't, can't say what do you think that is. You can't pull them on what what they believe. Oh, you yeah. can. They can't talk. You, yeah, you could pull them, but you wouldn't get you get you get nonsense. <laughs> you get nonsense back. Um, uh, you could give right. them like classic psych, psych task. You could give them like a, a you know a, a two alternative force choice task. Give them a button box, but they're not gonna they'll mash it. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna get anything useful that way. So mm-hmm. um, what we do instead is we show them different types of events. The example that you gave about uh, why we think uh, uh, infants know something about solidity, uh, the classic tasks are things like showing infants displays where uh, a drawbridge moves and then stops where an object, they've just seen an object placed, 
versus seeing a drawbridge appear to go through the object. Mm. Uh, and when you show infants those types of displays, uh, they they often look longer at what we would call the impossible event. Mm. Uh, so based on them just looking longer, we say, oh, they're surprised. They must be surprised because they understand that objects are solid. Mm -hmm. uh, but really, we don't understand uh, a lot of why infants are doing the things that they do. Um, uh, infants could be looking longer uh, because that's what they expected. For the drawbridge case, they could look longer because the drawbridge is moving more in one case versus the it's other. It's a bit of an inference. It's a it's a really big leap uh, yeah. between uh, an infant is looking longer at A versus B. Uh, thus, they understand that objects persist in time and space and mm -hmm. um, uh, anything anything deeper than that. Well, so where do... Where do they acquire, where do we get our beliefs from? Uh, we get our beliefs from a process that I think is reasonable to call a, a sort of sampling process from the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the other thing that's important to understand about our beliefs is uh, there's way more evidence in the world that we could use to form them than we possibly have time to navigate. Uh, mm. I didn't appreciate that at the beginning. I think especially uh, those of us, you and me, that consider ourselves skeptics and people that like to um, uh, think critically about things in the world, we have this sort of illusion that we're going to learn everything. I was like, we're going to learn everything that's possible. And right. um, uh, all of the knowledge that we have, we came to through reason. Uh, once you point it out, it becomes obvious. But it wasn't to me like when I was in high school. Yeah. Um, that's there's no way. There's too much richness. You can't possibly. <laughs> no, it's it's not an issue of like motivation. You cannot acquire all of the information in the world every moment that you are uh, sitting in a place. You are making all of these micro decisions that come with a huge opportunity cost. So if I'm looking yeah. at you right now, I'm not looking out the window. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I am learning things about your facial expressions and I'm able to tell what you think maybe about what I'm saying, but I'm missing out on everything else that I'm not fixating. So if a unicorn passes behind me, I'll miss it. <laughs> I won't know about that. Uh, uh, there's way more that you don't know, that you can't know, that you can't integrate into your understanding of the world, then there is things that you can integrate. So you, you have to sample. Uh, yeah. and uh, Reality has so much detail. Right. Reality has so much detail. And, and the world isn't static. It's perpetually changing. So yeah. um, you can't know all of the things perfectly. We have a pretty good system in place to do a decent job of approximating. Um, uh, there's our systems that we have in place that, that govern our systems like attention uh, help us pick and choose, help us figure out uh, when we should continue watching versus when we should like, we know enough, uh, cut and run um, and go look at something else, <laughs> um, uh, look for another window or, or whatever the situation is. Uh, it, you're making me, you're, you're reminding me of uh, uh, my last interview was with Scott Soames, who's a philosopher. So I've been thinking about my own like times of studying philosophy. And, and part of my fantasy at that time was that I would like prove everything that I believed that you could start from first principles, right. Of you could do like, you know, Descartes, I think therefore I am and like expand from there. And then like 
prove your entire edifice of knowledge. I and, love that idea. And, yeah. In, in fact, and some philosophers claim to have done it, you know, right. uh, that's what Kant's system was. Ayn Rand famously like claimed that she derived an entire system of thought from A equals A, which Ayn, is- Ayn Rand claimed a lot of things. Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand was a nut bar, but yeah. um, the, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, that's like sort of part of the project. That's like the fan, the philosopher's fantasy. And it's not possible yeah. <laughs> to yeah. do it. It's not possible to have literally every single thing that you believe or feel that you know be based on rigorous logical analysis. In fact, the one of the best arguments against, you know, the Descartes' evil demon hypothesis, which is the, you know, the, the fear that what if everything I experience is just an illusion given to me by an evil magician or an evil demon or the matrix, right? right. That uh, how do you disprove that, right? Well, one of the ways you disprove it is like you just don't behave that way. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. you, like it's, you're, you're living your life, you know, like there's, there's too much, there's too many other things to do. Like it would, you can't spend the years it would take you to finally like disprove that perfectly and then prove everything else you need to, you still need to eat breakfast and you still, you're still going to necessarily have all of these other beliefs that are not based on your conclusions about that. So to a certain extent, it's almost immaterial because you've, you're, you actually do not work in this hyper rational way in your life. That's that's right. Uh, but I would I would add as a caveat onto that, the systems that you have in place do a pretty good job given the limitations of uh, how much information you can process moment mm-hmm. to moment, of like the fact that you only have one set of eyeballs, um, the fact that um, uh, there's not infinite there's not infinite time uh, and you don't have infinite bandwidth. Our systems are pretty good at giving us a pretty good idea most of the time of mm-hmm. generally how relevant information uh, is in the world, but it's predictably imperfect. I think it mm-hmm. goes wrong in certain circumstances, and uh, understanding that is important for uh, figuring out how to get people smarter, I think. One thing I've thought is that we're, we're heuristic like animals in that we have these models that are, um, I think I'm using the word heuristic correctly, that it's like a, a scheme to figure out a pretty good answer most of the time, like when, when presented with a bunch of data, right? Yeah. Um, and we're, we're pretty good at that. Like one thing we talked about in our writer's room was, um, was uh, pattern seeking, that like humans are pattern seeking creatures because that helps us like define cause and effect. Like right. we're always looking for cause and effect. Okay, some random shit happened. Why did it happen? Happen. Okay, every time the random shit happens, that happens too. So this probably caused that. And that's like pretty good when you're like trying to figure out, you know, why your why your friends keep dying in the jungle. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. um like, or figuring oh. out which light switch to use. It's like I, I touch that and then the light turned on, even if that doesn't look like yeah. a light switch, I contemplate whether or not I caused that because it's such a huge coincidence that those two things would co-occur. Yeah, but you're not actually acting like a scientist and proving that whether A caused B every single time, you're just inferring it and that works 90% of the time. But sometimes it does not work, right? And that's when, you know, we end up, that leads us into error a lot of the time. It's not actually a rational way to work to say, oh, every time I see these two things happen next to each other, the pattern means there's causation. Right. That that leads to some predictable bias, uh, which as a, leads people to uh, believe that one thing causes another. And I was mm-hmm. like, that, that, that particular uh, example of uh, logic on awry has become kind of a mantra in like stats 101 classes. It's like mm. correlation is not causation. Right. Uh, even as a scientist, uh, you have to fight 
the feeling that something causes <laughs> something else sometimes uh, because it is very um, the allure of that. That's how we came to be. I was like, it, it's a very functional uh, system for figuring out how things in the wor- uh, world in the world work most of the time. Uh, but sometimes it, yes, goes wrong. But when you're talking about like knowledge and belief, it seems that you could say you you understand the statistics very well, and so you understand correlation versus causation. Uh, but yet you find yourself <laughs> believing in that something is is causation despite yourself right yeah. like something something about the way our brains work like almost override our deeper knowledge of how knowledge formation actually should work do you do you find that's the case that's absolutely the case so uh, we have some uh research led by my my graduate student who who you know uh, Louis Marti um that is about uh, where your sense of certainty comes from. Uh, and when we started that research program, we were expecting for how certain you feel to have something to do with the ground truth of how certain you should feel. Uh, but maybe it was like exaggerated. You got certain a little bit too quickly. Uh, instead, what we found is that uh, your subjective sense of certainty, how confident you feel that you are, uh is is best predicted by feedback, meaning whether or not you're getting stuff right. Uh, so mm. that is not the same thing as uh, how you should uh, rationally assign certainty to things. If we were to build a model that was going to do the best job that it could uh, coming up with the right answer, but that's not how we would design that system. Mm. Um, uh, we find since we have published that paper, I didn't realize how often my decision-making was based on my subjective sense of certainty when I now realize that that's not a predictive signal. Uh, um, uh, it happens all the time that somebody in the lab says like, hey, uh, have you seen uh, that robot that we were going to do some uh, uh, causal learning studies with? And I say, I, I, I'm, uh, I think that it's in the cubicle downstairs in this room. I'm, I'm pretty sure. And I'm like, but actually, how sure I am has nothing to do with it. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, uh, I now back up and say, uh, I have no idea. Uh, I can't. <laughs> my, my, my sense of certainty has nothing to do with how certain I should be. So um, uh, we're all at a loss. And I think we've all done that. But your, but your sense of certainty is still, I mean, that is part of your brain or part of your reasoning process coming to a conclusion. And despite your meta-awareness of how your reasoning process works because you are the person who fucking studies it. Right, right. <laughs> you still have that sense of certainty and you sort of can't, you can't divest yourself of it. It still arises and it still affects your decision making no matter what you do. That's correct. It still drives my behavior. It still drives my uh, uh, decisions when I go to the grocery store. It's a really important part of how the system is uh, to have a mechanism that says, you know what, I'm I'm sure enough uh, I'm going to disengage and go look at something else. If you didn't mm-hmm. have uh, mechanisms in place for uh, triggering you to say good enough and then move away, as if you'd spend like forever looking at, I don't know, the cheddar cheese in the grocery store <laughs> right. and you'd like never find anything else. You'd learn a lot um, about all of the cheddar cheese labels and all of the different variations <laughs> right. in colors and textures and prices. Uh, but uh, you would never leave the grocery store and that would not be good. Yeah. So um, most of the time when we're not in science mode, it's important to be employing these heuristics yeah. uh, as opposed to uh, doing what we all think we're doing, which is like, I'm I'm very sure about everything that I attend to in the world. Yeah. Uh, you're not and you can't be. And uh, being a little bit more humble about that, uh, yes, might be a good thing in the world. And it's 
well, we have this weird push and pull between our desire to be rational, our desire to base everything off of evidence and to, but then there's also part of us that is built to not do that. That, uh, like again, you're, you, you, I'm trying, I'm trying to express this right. You have this meta awareness of how your, of how your mind works and that it's not that rational. Um, and you, you know, if you work very slowly and carefully, you can like figure out what your own irrational decision-making is. And you can like, you, you can say, oh, I'm falling into this trap, this fallacy, I'm exhibiting this bias, et cetera. But then at the end of the day, you still have all them in you, in your, in the way your brain is working and you can't, you can't get away from that. It's that it, is correct. We're like yeah. two minds at once. Right, right. Um, that that thing that you raised, uh, that I I have the intuition that we do, but we don't know scientifically whether people do. I want to go back to that for just a second. Um, uh, having a meta awareness, I think helps me moderate the tendency to make decisions on the basis of it in certain contexts if I slow down. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is one of the interesting hypotheses you raised that I think is untested uh, in uh, your Mind Parasites show. Mm. Um, uh, we don't know the degree to which awareness of the heuristics that we employ in everyday reasoning and decision-making, we don't know whether awareness of them might change people's behavior. Can you overcome uh, in a particular context the tendency to conclude something that you shouldn't if you're aware of how your system works? Right. That's an open question and I think a really interesting one. Yeah, I make that assertion at the end of the show that we are not, we don't have free will the way we think that we do. Right. Um, we don't just make decisions because that's what's best for us. We can come under the control of advertising, of, you know, algorithms designed to shape our behavior, of addiction. Those are the three A's I talk about in the show, uh, three examples. But I say at the end, and I'm really just trying to give a positive spin on it, and, and I'm taking my best guess here that, hey, if you can be aware of that fact, that you are vulnerable to uh, being infected with a, with a mental parasite, you can at the very least avoid situations in which you might be infected. You can have a meta-analysis of your own behavior and say, okay, well, uh, I'm going to act knowing that. Uh, my actions can be controlled and maybe avoid them. Um, but yeah, it's true. There's no, there's no evidence for that. Particularly, I'm just like being very hopeful yet. that that's the there's case. No yet. evidence yet. We're gonna, we're gonna look <laughs> into it and we're gonna find some, uh, or we'll find that that doesn't work and we're all doomed. Um, uh, 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 we'll, fi we'll figure something. Out. It's, it's totally. Uh, that was the idea uh, that made me want to talk to you after the show. That was the idea. That yeah. was the million dollar idea. Oh, uh, oh! I, I would love to have a million dollars from that idea. I, so we need a couple million probably for like figuring that out. Hopefully, <laughs> so um, if any of the, the the grant foundations are listening, um, incredible. Uh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. would be. Well, what are some other? Uh, t tell me about some of your other results in terms of how we form knowledge and belief. Uh, let's see. Uh, there, that's that's a wide open. Is is uh, that too wide? That's a well. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Um, uh. So we were talking about heuristics and the role of heuristics in guiding you towards information in the world. Uh, maybe talking about some of the work on curiosity uh, would be helpful at mm -hmm. this point. Yeah. Uh, curiosity is a system uh, that is designed to help us in this task and uh, work with my other graduate student, Shirlene Wade. Um, we've done some work to, to, to try to look at 
where curiosity comes from, what induces it. Uh, and what we found is that uh, you're not curious when you determine that you know everything about a particular topic. Mm -hmm. uh, that makes sense because if you already know everything, uh, spending more time on it would just be a waste of time. That opportunity cost. I was like, if I know everything about um, this particular TV show, uh, I should change the channel because I'm missing out on the other channels. Right. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, we also know that if you encounter stuff that is too novel, uh, that's also not a good strategy. When when we first started working on this topic uh, and we talked about, like, what should a good system do? Since we don't know how humans work, let's figure out uh, what are the possibilities on the table. Uh, I would have thought that the best strategy is you should seek out like as much new information as possible. So just go for the thing that is least overlapping with what you already understand in the world. Uh, but uh, when you actually cash that out, the most new information that you could obtain may be too far to be useful. So mm -hmm. if I'm picking a TV show and I pick uh, a movie on a topic I don't know in a language I don't understand, yeah. it's going to be very difficult for me to actually get anything uh, from that from that TV show. Yeah. Um, uh, if I knew the language, I could learn something about the new topic. If I knew a lot about the topic, maybe I can figure out some of the words. I can learn some of the language. Uh, but learning too much new stuff at once is intractable. It's not a good strategy because if there's no overlap, you're missing all of the base concepts and levels of representation that you need in order to start integrating it into what you already believe about the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, uh, curiosity is this cool system that uh, governs the degree to which we are interested in things in the world. Uh, and starting even in infancy tends to pull us towards things that are a little bit different from what we currently understand, but not so different that we can't make any progress. Yeah. Wow. That, <laughs> that brings together so many threads for me. That's so cool. It also can make you feel better. You're like, that's why I wasn't attending in that class. It clearly wasn't optimized to where I was yeah. uh, mentally. It was like either overly redundant or um, uh, too novel for me to be able to keep my attention there. Yeah. I mean, I remember being in classes where I was being told something and I, I, couldn't, it was like, I couldn't do anything with the information. I, right. I, I couldn't take it in. It was just going by and I was like, I don't know what to do with this. And, and then, you know, a number of years later, I taught, um, sketch comedy writing, uh, for, for a couple of years. And I remember telling students thing, something like, here's, here's something you need to know about comedy writing, about like how the sketch should work, you know, about right. the structure of it. And I'd be feeling, I was explaining it very clearly and it would be whizzing by them. I could see that they were not taking it in, right? Yeah. And then simultaneously, I was taking improv classes, which I was bad at improv, and I, I only did it for about three or four years because it turned out to not be my form of comedy. But I remember my teacher in that class trying to tell me, here's what you should be doing when you're improvising. And and I was like, I don't I don't know how, I want to do what you're telling me to do, but I, I don't follow, like I don't get it. And I started to think of it as being like, this like structure that you're like bolting new, this is such a bad metaphor, but it's like, um, 
like a, like almost like a metal sculpture that you're like bolting new pieces onto. And if you don't have like a piece that the new piece goes onto that fits, yeah. right, there's no way to attach it. You need to sort of build your way out to it. Um, it needs to be in that sweet spot or you can't you can't do anything that, with it. That is a brilliant metaphor. I don't no, know it's not. It makes no sense. A metal sculpture? Yes. What are well, you talking about? You don't, it, it's very similar. You're being to, too nice. I'm not. I'm, I'm mean. Um, I'm actually mean. I'm a very mean. I'm not known for my warmth. Um, uh, so... <laughs> The, um, uh, uh, that is very similar to a metaphor that Piaget used. He mm. wasn't envisioning a metal sculpture, but he was envisioning uh, a wooden <laughs> box and kids trying to, um, uh, they encounter blocks in the world, which are like the new concepts and things that they encounter. Uh, and uh, the box is like a shape sorter that you'd give to a toddler. And uh, they have some number of holes. Those represent the mental concepts their way of understanding the world. Mm -hmm. uh, he envisioned uh, integrating information as being a process of finding a new shape block in the world. And then you have two choices. Uh, you can either try to shove it through one of the holes that you have. Um, uh, and that's not quite right, but it works a lot of the time. Yeah. Or if you encounter something that's so different that it won't go into one of those existing whole shapes, you're forced to like create a new hole, yeah. which is like a new concept. Uh, so he envisioned um, a similar kind of um, process for building up knowledge in the world. It's not that dissimilar from your metal sculpture. Uh, I think that's a very useful way to, 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 to think about it. Uh, when you encounter something um, that uh, doesn't fit, uh, another way of dealing with it is just like leaving that block on the ground as like leaving that piece of, of, uh, that metal hunk, uh, uh mm -hmm. not on your sculpture until you have the hardware that you need to, to attach it. It also makes me think of, for instance, there's so many activities that uh, this makes me think of how curiosity makes things interesting, right? That I think about like traveling and the difference between when you travel to, to a place that's so foreign to you right. that it's overwhelming versus the experience of traveling to a place where you're fascinated by it and where you want to, uh, oh, wait, I, I want to know more about this. I want to see, uh, you know, I want to go to a restaurant. I want to go to a place of worship. I want to, you know, understand everything about this place. Whereas, you know, but I've always, I've always felt of this is more the more I travel internationally, the more I feel like I'm like leveling up and like learning more about the world. And yeah. you know, like I've been okay, I've been to I've been to Japan now. I think I could probably handle China, right? Right? Because yeah. Japan's a little bit more familiarity, right? Because of there's more Japanese culture that I grew up with. So now when I go, I have a lot of curiosity. Wait, I, I know I understand this, but now I under, now I want to understand how that part comes into it, you know. Um, and then once I understand that part of the world a little bit better, maybe if I go to another country that I'm less familiar with, like I've thought about uh, thought about it in that way um and i think about how like in works of fiction like uh like a fantasy novel or something along those lines so much of the time what's pulling you in is your curiosity about some unrevealed part of it and sometimes you know i've tried to read a fantasy novel where it's like i don't know any of these words there's so many proper nouns i don't know i'm overwhelmed and you either push through or you bounce off and you right. say I'm, I'm not kidding but then once you get about 100 pages in you like understand the world and you're like wait but what's this you know what's this character what's this area there's this whole nation that hasn't been described yet and that's sort of what what pulls you further in that's what keeps you going is wanting to know what that next step is that that's exactly right and uh, the the uh idea that knowledge builds is an important one for understanding a lot of uh the most interesting aspects of human behavior knowing something about a topic tends to make you want 
to know more about that topic. Uh, so yeah. uh, if you're trying to figure out how you could um, uh, encourage people to be curious about a wide variety of things, uh, they need a wide variety of, of exposures. Uh, and uh, yes, knowing something tends to make you want to know more. But that that's such a optimistic thing to say about humanity, right? To yeah. say that uh, that there's this deep curiosity system that's just part of how we yeah. interact with things and it's based on once people know things it makes them more curious that causes them to try to know am I understanding that right that that's exactly right and uh I don't think it's overly optimistic I think that uh with a word like curiosity when people are using that word um to uh refer to a trait I see it used in a lot of ways that is sort of judgmental um mm -hmm. uh, you say like this person is very curious this person is not very curious mm -hmm. um I uh you already know I don't have a lot of respect for words because I know that when we're using them we don't all mean the same things um <laughs> but if I like I'm trying to approximate that usage um uh, of the word uh curiosity uh it's often used to cast judgment on people that have what some people might call more narrow interests. Mm. Uh, I would call them peakier interests. Um, uh, if you're only interested in- Peakier. Uh, peakier meaning uh, we don't know that the amount, the drive, the amount of curiosity that you have is different between somebody that's interested in a lot of different topics and somebody that like only wants to know about like basketball and model trains. <laughs> um, uh, maybe they're only interested in those two topics, but chances are- they know a lot about those two topics. Yeah. So to say that that person is less curious, especially in a judgmental way, where you're like, we're gonna we're gonna come in and try to change that, um, uh, doesn't doesn't make sense to me. It absolutely could be the case that different people have different degrees of drive uh, for novel information, uh, but we don't really have good metrics. We don't have any data um, that says that we should conclude that yet. Uh, also, it's like when people accomplish um, uh, great things in the world, uh, when people are doing, uh, uh, writing uh, Nobel Prize winning novels, uh, it's often because they had to specialize. So you do stand-up comedy, and I yeah. know how much work it takes uh, to get really good at that. Uh, if you were devoting a lot of effort in a lot of other places— again, because of the limitations of space and time, uh, you'd be worse at stand-up comedy. So yeah. to come in and say, like, uh, this person uh, has less curiosity, as like they should be doing something different, um, it's not obvious to me that we know that. Uh, yeah, and you can get curious about one about one topic very deeply. Right. Um, that, like there's, because any, almost any topic has a lot that you can pursue in it. My my uh, girlfriend Lisa right now is, is for the last couple of years been, has been getting back into uh, uh, horse life. Like like she has you horse know life. That's yeah amazing. she 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 you know she uh, has been taking horseback riding lessons and she now has a horse that she is that she is like raising and training and and it's such a fulfilling it seems like such a fulfilling hobby because every day there's something new to do. Right. Today we're working on this and then oh wait I, I found a new book on how to on how to sit just right and if I oh if I move my hips forward it causes this whole change etc cetera, etc cetera. um and she does that for like two hours you know five times a week yeah um and 
I, I've been thinking, I don't have anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> like I do stand up comedy that much, but it's not, it's not a, it's not a hobby. It's my career. Um, but apart from that, I read and I play video games and I exercise and I do all these, I have like manifold different things that I'm maybe interacting with in a more shallow way, but I don't know how to think about which of these is better, yeah. <laughs> which of these approaches, whether to go super deeply or, or super wide, yeah. you know? I, 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 I wouldn't say you don't have any of these like pockets of extreme expertise. Uh, the, the, the process that you've described for figuring out how to communicate what is funny to people, even speaking fluently, you as a communicator are a very good speaker. Uh, I have tried through our interactions to learn from you and um, I just, I don't talk as much. I don't have as much experience talking. Um, uh, uh, yeah, everybody has uh, pockets of expertise, but I think due to biases that maybe come from school about like what is knowledge, what counts, mm. uh, people don't always appreciate them. Uh, attorneys, um, uh, I have long admired, I'd seen attorneys and the work that they do and um, admired them when they talk um, uh, uh, for how fluent they are and how well they are able to quickly integrate information and then make an argument. Uh, that's something that I would really like to do. And I mistakenly uh, for years thought that I couldn't be an attorney because I couldn't do that. I'm, I've been good at computers. I mm -hmm. started using computers very early. Um, uh, I'm a good programmer, uh, but uh, I wasn't a good speaker. It wasn't for many years before I realized that because I thought I wasn't a good speaker, I didn't do it, and so I never developed it. Lawyers are made. <laughs> like they, 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 they become better when they yes. start law school. They don't start like that. Uh, the training is doing the thing, and by nature of doing the thing, you get better at the thing you specialize. So um, yeah. uh, my speech is not uh, not as bad as it used to be. Um, it's much <laughs> improved, as shocking as that seems. Um, uh, and it's it's better now because I've gotten the opportunity to do more of it in the past five years. Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, I bet you do have, I know that you do have um, uh, pockets of expertise. Oh, cer certainly. It's just, it, it's... Curiosity works in so many different ways, I suppose, right. that that um, whether it takes you wide or whether it takes you whether it takes you deep. Um, but it does seem to interact with knowledge formation in this strange way, because it is uh, certainly good that we're curious. Yet again, our our the knowledge that we're forming so often is not true, right? Or right. subjective biases yeah. or- um, None of it. Yeah. All of it. All of it is not quite right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Actually, wait, let's return to that point right after the break. I want to get into more about how we should feel about so much of our knowledge being irrational and incorrect. We'll be right back with more Celeste Kid. Okay, we're back with Celeste Kid. So, um, Celeste, we've been talking about how we have this natural drive of curiosity that uh, has a sweet spot where we it, it compels us to learn more about the world. Um, and we need to use our attention in order to filter the vast detail <laughs> of reality in order to understand it. Um, and we also have these heuristics that we apply to reality that help us to come to conclusions more quickly that influence our beliefs and our knowledge. And also our beliefs and our knowledge are constantly changing, right? right? Or, or our concepts are constantly being slightly revised. That's right. Um, so that's a lot of 
weird human processes to be using to filter the world, right? So our goal, I've always felt my goal is to understand the world as it is. Like right. I, I want to understand, it's going back to philosophy, Kant, the thing in itself was right. a big concept for Kant. I want to understand what the world is outside of my brain. If right. the world is a way, I want to know what it is so I can act accordingly. And because that's like one of the driving values of my fucking life yeah. is to, is I want to understand the world, right? That's, that's one of the things that is, I, I think is makes life worth living. But all these filters that are coming in between, right? Curiosity only works if it's if it's right in the sweet spot for the knowledge I have already. Attention, I'm I'm constantly making subconscious or unconscious decisions of what to attend to, and I'm right. missing other things. Uh, the and I'm constantly revising the concepts that I do have, and not to mention the other hundreds of biases I probably have in my way of understanding the world. So, my question is: Is it? Is is it something that I should despair about that that my my it seems the concepts and knowledge in my head are always naturally going to be so far away from how the world really is because of these layers and layers of filters and I'm doomed to be walking around the world with incomplete incorrect uh, malformed knowledge that does not correspond to what's actually outside of my brain. How should I feel about that? How you, do you feel about you, that? You uh, uh, you should not despair, but that's absolutely. <laughs> true. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, it's absolutely true. And also you are, you are a liar. I was like that. Your life is about um, seeking truth and trying to figure out how close you can get to uh, uh, objective truth in the world. You are definitely a scientist uh, uh, and not, you're not like any other comedian uh, that I, <laughs> that I have ever met. Oh, um, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. You know, I was like that, that. I don't know if that's like a compliment to you or I'm insulting other comedians who are great people. Um, but, I think a lot um, of comedians have that same, have that same desire. Um, not every single one, not every single one. Some are, yeah. some some, some want to justify their complacency by yelling, but uh, like, why are things got to change? That's that's a whole type of comedian. But uh, a lot of people are like, wait, why why are we doing it this way? Like, yeah. isn't there a better way to be doing things? And they have a they have a seek and a quest to them. Yeah, yeah. You know? I, I'll, I'll, there is a there's a, a type of comedy that's very much about like you see that thing, I see that thing, the way you're thinking about it uh, is not uh, the only way to think about it. And mm -hmm. that, that, that that intrigues people, I think. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think it, there's any reason to despair. Uh, it's important. If, you, if there's a takeaway there, it's that uh, everybody has approximately the same system doing approximately the same things. Uh, we are all going to make errors. So it's really easy to notice somebody else's error uh, and look at it and say, like, that person, they should have mm. done a better job. Why don't they know that this is how things work in the world? Uh, I can't turn off my tendency to have those thoughts, too, when I encounter somebody that believes something that I think is obviously false I now know that for every one of those I notice in someone else, I'm possessing one of those in right. a different domain that I just haven't discovered. Um, uh, you can't know everything. So uh, me and my sister were raised in the same environment. We encountered the same things. Uh, I, uh, as, a, as a, a younger, more obnoxious child, uh, would sometimes scoff when she didn't understand something about a computer. Uh, but when I went out in the world and had social interactions and they didn't go as expected, she would scoff at me. Uh, I know more about computers because that's what I was attending to. She yeah. knows more about people. And I think it's 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 a really interesting um, strength of our species 
that we have these systems that uh, leverage the fact that when you know something, you tend to want to know more about it. One of the strengths of our species is that we specialize in ways that other species do not. Uh, mm -hmm. You can have a comedian, you can have a scientist, uh, you can have uh, a psychologist and a, a baker um, and uh, all of the other careers that exist in the world. Uh, there's not another animal species that specializes to that degree. Uh, and that is our strength. That's why I have an incredible uh, uh, computer and, and phones. And I was like, all of the technologies, planes, um, are because people specialize yeah. to an extreme degree. It allows us at a population level uh, to be able to cumulatively have way more knowledge than uh, even our close evolutionary relatives. So, like, there's no chimps uh, creating planes or um, <laughs> uh, uh, computers or any or anything like that. So, uh, it's important when you notice that somebody else doesn't know something to appreciate that the fact that we are built that way allows us a really big leg up. It allows us to cumulatively. Uh, create all kinds of things that other other species cannot. So uh, it's important that that guy doesn't understand something about computers. Um, he knows something that you don't. And yeah. um, all of us as a population are, are stronger for that. But also some of the things that that person thinks they know about computers or about planes. Let's take a scary example. Yeah. The, the, the biggest plane expert in the world, right? right? Uh, she might know everything. You, you know, this is, this is the person who goes and speaks before Congress about, or this is the person who's designing the new plane or et cetera. This is the person at the FAA who's regulating the other, you know, the plane manufacturers, right? She might not actually know what she thinks she knows, right? She might have- Almost uh, certainly that's true. Yeah. That's might, scary. There's going to be, if the feeling of certainty, which you said earlier, right. is not actually correlated with whether or not the thing you believe is true, right? Yeah. And I go talk to, you know, the woman who knows more about planes than anybody else in the world. And I say, should I feel, you know, safe on this flight right now? And she says, yes, I'm certain of it. Well, yeah, then, wait. <laughs> then, then you say, then you say, you 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 show me and you talk me through it. I was like, this is why I don't believe anybody um, about anything. And um, uh, appeals to uh, confidence uh, do the opposite uh, to my uh, tendency to adopt those beliefs or not. So mm -hmm. um, I, I should back up. It's not quite as as dark uh, as uh, that last description made it sound. Feedback in the world has something to do with ground truth. It's just not totally correlated. So mm -hmm. um, uh, if you have an idea and you see evidence that confirms it, and then you see more evidence, and then you see more evidence, uh, that's a sign that you might be on the right path. Mm -hmm. uh, where things might go awry is when you're getting the evidence from uh, maybe a, a not randomly sampled place. Um, uh, if you... Uh, for example, have an idea in mind, you Google it, and you get some YouTube videos that definitely don't represent right. uh, a, a, a random sample of opinions in the world. Uh, the people that have YouTube channels, uh, often it's very specialized. They often are creating that content because they're trying to uh, spread information about a minority belief or opinion. Yeah. Uh, if you think maybe the earth is flat and you go online and see a few videos of evidence um, that appears to uh, confirm your idea that the earth is flat, the risk is given what we know about our system, you could prematurely become very certain and thus no longer be interested or open to uh, fairly considering other evidence in the world because you think you're done. Uh, mm -hmm. That system that's designed to prevent us from wasting time on 
things that uh, uh, we do approximately know can can go wrong uh, when you happen to just by chance get a few pieces of confirming evidence. It may more often go awry with new technologies that people are using to accumulate um, their information. So that curiosity system is not triggered because you've you've seen too much. You feel like you've exhausted it in the in your initial couple YouTube videos that you watched. Right. Um, and you are not open to the actual information, it's almost too late for you. Yeah, that's the problem. The problem is that once you become very certain, uh, it's very hard to shake that certainty from people. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, the, 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 we, this is something that we, uh, we did that study. We thought we were going to design an intervention to shake people of unjustified certainty. Uh, and so far, that, Nothing, nothing we've tried uh, has, 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 has worked. Um, we've backed up and now we're trying to understand um, how you might be able to um, prevent people from uh, becoming unjustifiably certain to begin with. Um, uh, but the, yeah, we haven't had a whole lot of luck. Uh, that's an interesting, that's a really interesting way to put it because, you know, we did a segment on Adam Ruins Everything about the moon landing and about why the moon landing could not have been faked because – the film technology did not exist at the time. I to, love that argument. I love yeah. that clip. I, 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 so, and I, we made that because I came across that argument from a filmmaker and I was like, this is fascinating. I've never heard this argument that like literally they did not have, you know, it was a six hour live broadcast. And, you know, uh, part of the argument that the moon landing conspiracy theorists make is that it was slowed down film. That's how they did the jumping, right? That's how they right. did the slow motion jumping on the moon. They slowed down film. And he said, actually, there's no, there was no technology at the time that could have achieved that on a six hour uninterrupted live broadcast. And he went through all the ways they could have done it. And they're all ludicrous and would have involved NASA inventing film technology that did not arise for 40 more years. And right. then everyone keeping it, keeping it a secret, which is, I would say implausible at the very least, look, we can have an argument maybe, but at the very least, it's a very interesting, fun argument. Right. And so we did it on the show and look, I didn't expect to turn around moon landing conspiracy theorists. Right. right. Um, that was not really an expectation I had, but I was still struck by how much they did not they they did not even seem interested in engaging with the argument um, right. with the uh, they, they were like. Oh, no, no, this, they were just like, Adam's just a moron. <laughs> He's saying nonsense. <laughs> Let's look back at the same shit we've been saying the whole time, yeah. you know? Um, and that, and that really struck me. And so the idea that, yeah, they wouldn't have curiosity about this other argument is a uh, very, that seems very apt to me. Yeah. And, and why would you, if you think you figured it out, uh, it, it is in, in, uh, under some definitions of what, what it means to be rational, if you are very confident that you have figured it out, you shouldn't spend more time uh, weighing other evidence. That's that's intentionally costly. That takes time. Uh, it's it's a rational for people to um, get 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 the idea in mind and then walk away. Um, uh, but it's not. Uh, yeah, it can go it can go awry. Um, and when people are left with the wrong idea. It's very. I don't have a good solution for how you break them out of yeah. that. Uh, it's 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 tough. It's easier to try to catch it before they become certain. Um, uh, I can think of interventions uh, in that domain that 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 have promised that haven't been tested yet. But mm. uh, once people become certain, they are very stubborn with their beliefs, yeah. and it's very hard to shake them of those beliefs. And it's difficult to know how to 
Yeah, I, occasionally people will break out of that belief, but it's almost hard to figure out why it would yeah. why it would happen. I, I was talking to a friend who uh, quit drinking. Uh, I also quit drinking, um, and she described you know, how impervious she was to the argument that she should quit, you know, that even after she had said out loud, I have a drinking problem. She's like, I'm not going to do anything about that though. And then one day, her name's Edith Zimmerman. She's a wonderful writer. She said, it was as though a different self of her like peeked out from the clouds and said, you could live a different way, right? And it's like a mysterious moment to her, what caused the change? Because she was so beyond certain, you know, it was also a physical, (laughs) physical addiction that was changing her mental processes as I talk about in, in my Mind Parasite show. And it was, it, it, we're, we don't really have an understanding of, of when those moments occur. That's right. And, and I've talked to conspiracy or people who are like, oh yeah, I used to believe in this conspiracy theory. When you read the accounts yeah. from folks who, who write, I was trapped in this way of thinking and, and I got out. They don't seem to be certain of how it happened either. Right. So I, we know uh, that in order to be curious, you have to know that there's something that you don't know. Uh, you mm. have to appreciate that there's a piece of information that you could have that you don't. Uh, you think that that would lead us to be able to figure out exactly how uh, you give that moment to people, but it's very hard. It's very hard to figure out how to make them have that realization. And it's strange because so many people. There's also the folks who who define themselves as rational thinkers and say yes. and say I am a I am a rational thinker and I think reasonably and and therefore that almost seems like an extra toxic form of certainty because it is based on a self conception of being logical when in fact we none of us are as logical as we would like to believe that is correct it is not possible to uh, come to every decision that you make through logic. And if that's part of your identity, and if you're very sure that that's how you operate, uh, that's that's an extra hard circumstance to figure out how you could persuade somebody to maybe consider reconsidering some of their beliefs. Yeah. And that's the uh, – that's like the – I remember reading – actually, we were talking about Ayn Rand earlier, right? Yeah. Ayn Rand and her followers – had this whole thing about like, we are the objectivists. We do everything by logic, yes. right? And there was an essay I read years ago because what ended up happening was they, was her inner circle exhibited cult-like behavior toward, yeah. toward like in the later years. Like it was, that people were being excommunicated and shunned and uh, uh, a lot of very irrational things were going on. You know, people were just doing whatever she said or yeah. she was investing, you know, had some, some superficial similarities to Scientology or other things like that. It yeah. was, it was a short-lived, I think, period in which it was that, and that doesn't necessarily reflect on her ideas. If anyone's listening is a fan of, of her ideas or her writing, I personally am not, but, you know, I'm not going to poo-poo all of that. But right. the the essay was about, um, well, how is it possible that these people who had defined their lives and their self-identities around we are, the, we are rational, you know, <laughs> would end up like behaving in the deeply unrational way that, you know, cult-like behavior is, where you right. are, are taking your orders from authority and you're refusing to see a wider world around you, et cetera. Um, and so that that seems like that can be extra extra pernicious to to have that firm feeling about rationality. Yeah, I think, I think that that's right. And all, all of these things also interact with uh, other influencers of human behavior. A lot of the things that people do uh, are not about discovering information. It's about making relationships with people, forming mm-hmm. social bonds, figuring out uh, who is part of my 
group and who is not? Uh, how do I value signal um, in order to attract people that have the same values as me to me? Uh, your clothes, the way that you talk, uh, a lot of human behavior is probably happening for 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 those goals. So gaining social capital, or I yeah. like I call it I call it things that people do to feel fancy. Um, uh, Twitter <laughs> behavior, a lot of the, the Twitter behavior that I would like feel like is irrational. I'm like, oh no, that's probably some sort of weird value signaling. You're like getting getting points with your your people um, yeah. uh, and uh, figuring out who your people are. So I, Ayn Rand, uh, that whole history and situation, uh, I suspect that some of the people's behavior was not oriented towards rationality and figuring out what's true in the world, even though that was the values that they were espousing that brought them together. Yeah. It was about like impressing each other. Uh, and um, yes, sometimes bad things happen <laughs> when, when that's prioritized <laughs> over everything else. Well, let's talk about, for instance, like, you know, social structure in academia, for instance, because right. um, academia is the field that, you know, broadly that is, that is the most hyper-rational that where everything is, you know, based on peer review and evidence and, you know, depending on the different fields, they have sure. different standards, but it's, you know, this is the life of the mind. This is where we try to, you know, we're all here in the pursuit of the truth. Um, but it's also a social world in which, you know, you have dominant personalities and you have people behaving badly and you have social currency and you have all those sorts of things. Um, you've been outspoken about sexual harassment in uh, academia. Um, I have. You gave a uh, uh, talk that made waves uh, recent, which I, I watched, which is both about AI and problems on the internet and knowledge formation, but then you also spoke about uh, why men should not have that fear of that fear of, oh no, like they're coming for us and we're all going to be booted out by the uh, anti-sexual harassment mob. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, just let me in on a little bit of your thinking about that. Yeah. So, uh, academia, not that long ago, women were literally not allowed to be part of that at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, in a lot of fields, we have a very long way to go in terms of um, there being representation along a lot of dimensions that are important for for, for really having diversity uh, in, in, in those fields. Um, I was uh, harassed by a professor at at uh, the University of Rochester in my first year of graduate school uh, who uh, went on to uh, disrupt the educations of, of 15 other women after me. Hmm. Uh, I wasn't able to say anything about it because uh, professors who uh, are making decisions about graduate students' lives have the power to uh, completely derail their careers. It's like they control yeah. the research funding, they control access to lab resources, uh, and uh, nobody knows who the graduate students are. Whether or not you get to get your PhD or go on to the next uh, level depends upon uh, the professor saying, this is somebody who's good, this is somebody who you can trust, this is somebody who you should interview. Uh, yeah. And uh, because of the very strict power hierarchies, the extreme power that professors wield over students, uh, there have been some really bad cases of individuals who abuse their power. Um, that happens. Uh, and uh, that is relatively, thankfully, infrequent. It became clear to me that a lot of my male colleagues who were identifying as allies that were very supportive of me uh, and the other women when we came forward, uh, they 
were supportive, but they were also under the impression that um, minor things were turning into lawsuits. And this made them fearful, even if they were mm-hmm. trying to be supportive. Uh, so uh, the comments I made at the at the end of uh, my, my NeurIPS talk um, uh, were uh, intending to correct the record on that. Uh, it became clear to me that most of the men in academia, most of them uh, had this um, incorrect notion that uh, people's careers are sometimes destroyed over minor misunderstandings hitting Mm -hmm. on women in academia, um, uh, jokes, trying to be nice. Uh, There were a lot of men who um, told me outright uh, that uh, they were feeling very anxious about interacting with women. They didn't know how to do it. They they were their hearts were were in a good place. They were trying to figure out how to accommodate women, but they were falsely under the impression that they should like give them space or not mentor them because they don't want to like mess it up. Uh, and right. they weren't realizing uh, the asymmetry that creates in terms of educational opportunities, professional opportunities mm-hmm. for uh, for women. So. Uh, I thought I should correct that, and I did. Uh, nobody, <laughs> nobody's career. I was like, if 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 I'm incorrect, I was like, if somebody can point me to uh, a professor whose career was destroyed over false allegations, or um, even like dirty jokes or hitting on someone, I was like when they apologize, the people that do very bad things, they always apologize for something minor, and uh, often that something minor is technically true. But those apologies are are lies of omission. Uh, they're apologizing for a thing that absolutely happened, hitting on a student, making a dirty joke, mm-hmm. uh, and they're not mentioning all of the many, many more egregious things that they did that are the reason why there's an internal inquiry or there's a lawsuit. Right. Um, uh, they leave out like the assault uh, when there's uh. when there's evidence of assault. So um, uh, that those those apologies. Uh, those apologies were misleading all of the other men in the field. And that's not fair to them either. I was like, that's not fair for uh, men in academia to be falsely under the impression that your career could be destroyed over a minor misstep. It's not fair to the junior women that still are really not represented at the senior ranks that really, really need equal access to opportunities to meet with their male professors and mentors um, that need to be included in uh, social gatherings where there's going to be talk of science. Women need to be there too. Um, uh, And the men also can benefit from uh, having women be part of the conversation. Every dimension along which you increase diversity, you increase the hypotheses that are on the table. Uh, It leads to higher rates of innovation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's better for everybody um, to have as many people from as many backgrounds uh, at the table. And in academia, we have a really long way to go. Yeah. I mean, I... Look, I'm in my own work, right? I've I've experienced. There are so many topics that we we would not have been able to do that I'm so glad that we did. That we we were not able to do. We would not have been able to do if we didn't have, you know, people of diverse backgrounds in of all types of diverse backgrounds right. in the in the room because we wouldn't know the things we wouldn't have had the conversations not because like oh it's not a uh, white men can't talk about this not that but because like the 
the idea would not have been brought up. That's the, correct. The, yeah. w- some no one would have pitched the idea. Um, no one would have had the experience that led to the thought. Uh, and so it's manifestly makes the work better. I can only yeah. imagine the same thing is true if you're talking about yeah researching human behavior. Exactly. You need all of the kinds of humans from all the backgrounds <laughs> in the room. I was like, this this this, yeah. uh, uh, this conversation is fun because now it's looping back around. Everybody knows different stuff. None of it is quite right. Uh, but you need, uh, <laughs> right. if the goal is getting at what is true in the world, you need all of the different variations on concepts represented in the room to make progress towards that goal. That's really important uh, in all fields, but but especially in science or any of the disciplines that are aimed at getting at truth. Uh, you need poor people and rich people and you need um, uh, uh, people of all ethnicities. You need yeah. men, you need women. Uh, uh, you need uh, everyone, everyone in that room because all of those dimensions are going to tend to be coming from uh, all, all of those different dimensions affect the experiences that you have and um, uh, the experiences you have are directly related to the beliefs that you have. Yeah. And is there... Is there an asymmetry? What, those those men in academia who who don't understand what is actually at stake, or, right. or don't understand what these issues actually are, is there a is there an asymmetry in their knowledge that is that is coming from the academic worldview? Is there is there something about you know the, again the commitment to rationality or understanding that is that is getting in the way of 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 addressing that or seeing it. When I read things that Steven Pinker has written and tweeted on the topic, mm-hmm. I would say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's a great example of somebody who prides himself on being uh, a rational intellectual thinker, uh, but fails regularly, pretty catastrophically, uh, to consider the perspectives of other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I uh, that that idea of I am the uber rational person and I have thought everything through and therefore my pronouncements on any issue are, uh, are therefore rational are, is a, is a problem among, uh, the, the most eminent statesmen of academia, (laughs) you know, the folks like that's, I, I relate to that criticism certainly, but I also, I, it's, it's so strange because I, uh, uh, the idea that, Oh, anything could happen to you, you know, like uh, people are being attacked for for anything now and and men have to walk around in eggshells. I mean, look, the entertainment industry, all industries are going through this transition at the same time. We're all we're all having the same realizations, you know, and it's expressed in different ways um, in the entertainment industry versus academia, for instance. But like I work with I I have women working under me and, and I and I and I have now, as I did then, like a commitment to mentoring and to like doing my part to to bringing more folks in. Right? I've never felt that I uh, that that I was going to be attacked for something spurious or that my career could be destroyed if I say the wrong thing and that therefore I have to keep my distance. I've never felt fear around it, and and uh, it doesn't seem that hard yeah, to not sexually harass in the workplace like am i alone in this well so so, so <laughs> your access to that to that truth i would say that that is that is much closer to the truth uh, not i would that that is definitely closer to the truth of the matter um uh one of the points that i made at the neurips talk is uh the amount of effort and risk somebody has to take to levy a complaint against a professor 
is huge. I was like, yeah. the, the chances are uh, most likely outcome for filing a complaint is that you will be retaliated against and destroyed and nothing else is, ha- is going to happen. So um, uh, the, 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 uh, and that continues to happen now. That continues to happen now. Nothing typically happens to the professor at all. And in our case, uh, the professor uh, uh, sent an unwanted picture of his genitalia to a student. I was like, there was no question about what happened. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, uh, had loud sex within earshot of students who didn't want to hear, but could, uh, there's a whole laundry list of things that are not debated as to what he did. Uh, he still has his job. Uh, nothing, nothing, nothing wow. happens most of the time. Uh, the effort it takes to, uh, prepare and then file a lawsuit. It takes a lot of money, uh, and uh, it's on par with uh, completing a PhD dissertation. But it's a lot more emotionally exhausting. Um, so uh, this is a is a message that I was worried is might be interpreted the wrong way, but it doesn't seem like it was. Um, uh, what I what I tell my male colleagues that are anxious about this is uh, unless you are deeply doing wrong by the women around you, uh, you are incredibly safe. Uh, so you yeah. can feel free to interact with them. Uh, I would guess that your access to what is true might directly hinge on the fact that you are interacting with women. Uh, if mm-hmm. you're in a field where there just aren't any around, ah. uh, if uh, you are not mentoring them uh, out of, I'm, I'm, yes, there's no way to convey uh, my sarcasm so I will just say it. I was like, it, I I had uh, professors that uh, were good-hearted people that, with a totally straight face, seriously said to me uh, after we came out um, with uh, the the our, our complaint about what had happened to us in graduate school. Um, uh, I had professors that said, you know, I'm so sorry for what you went through. I had no idea. Uh, this is this is why I don't mentor women students. I would never want them to feel uncomfortable. I don't know about their experiences. And I was like, wait a minute, back up. Yeah. <laughs> like, you don't mentor women students? Are like, yes, I don't. I, I don't. I didn't know about your experience. I don't know what women go through. And so I don't want to mentor them. And I'm like, I, um, uh, wait a minute. Um, uh, that was, that's out of respect for the women. Uh, like that's, you are not, that is discrimination. Uh, people are sensitive. I don't accuse them of discrimination. Oh, that's discrimination. It's discrimination. <laughs> and uh, you, you, if, uh, if I back them up very gently and say like, okay, say what you just said, but say like, I don't mentor, like name another minority. St- I don't mentor yeah. black people. And they're yeah. like, oh, that's racist. And like, yes, yeah. it is. Now, now, now say what you just said. And they're like, I don't mentor women. <gasps> that's sexist. And like, yeah. that is sexist. And yeah. I, I understand that they didn't understand that it was sexist. Uh, but that's why there's no women in in senior positions at universities is because of this just failure to appreciate things that are true in the world. And you can't if you don't have that um, that experience. Yeah, so, I mean, let's bring it back to knowledge formation. Like, like perhaps, perhaps the reason that I don't have fear is because I, I work with many women um, who – uh, if I look, uh, we, we do a comedy show. We all make jokes. I'm sure I've made a joke that is insensitive to the experiences of women because right. I happen to not be one. However, the women who we have in the room make another joke in which they like push back and they say, "Oh yeah, you're an asshole," right? In the yeah. in the context of it, because we're comedians, yeah, right? Right. And like we're we're going back and forth in that way, and because because we have that open line of communication, right? And and of course we have c- communications where people say, "Hey, when that thing was said, like." 
that wasn't a great thing to be said, you know, and could we be mindful of that in the future? And we say, yes, of course. Oh, oh, of course. You know, because we respect each other and we communicate like human beings. And perhaps if you have cut yourself off from ever communicating with women in the workplace, right, except very rarely, maybe you nod to the cleaning lady on the way out. Right. But you never work with a woman as a peer uh, who is able to give criticism or or feedback or who you respect enough to care about when they give those things. Right. That might be if you if you're cut off to that type of person, then you might have fear about, oh, wait, what if I say the wrong thing? I don't know what's going to happen because you're so unfamiliar with those people's <laughs> needs and yeah. and way of being. And you have no empathy because you you yeah. you're not around them. So you don't have the knowledge and therefore you are wrong. That's right. That's that's exactly that's exactly right. People form beliefs with respect to what they have access to uh, and uh, they form beliefs constantly based on the evidence they see. Uh, if you're a senior dude professor hanging out doing your evolutionary psychology um, uh, and uh, you uh, don't see a lot of women around, all people are constantly looking for causal explanations as to how the world works. It might be understandable for you to say like, oh, there's no women here. Um, I've never observed anything overtly sexist. I don't think that I am sexist. Uh, It must be that they don't want to be here. I'm going to wave my hands around and come up with an evolutionary theory for (laughs) why they're not here. I'm going to publish that um, uh, in a journal that's reviewed by um, people that have my perspective, that share my perspective, that will think this is super cool. Uh, And uh, I'm, even though I I don't... uh, that's wrong. That's not right. Women want to be in senior levels in all disciplines that I have had contact with. Um, uh, and there are systematic things that keep them out. Um, I, I am sympathetic with how an old white dude at a university could be left with that belief, given that there's no women around, uh, to correct the record. Uh, they're doing the best job that they can. They're wrong. Um, but, uh, they're doing the best job that they can, uh, with, uh, the information they have, I think the era of Twitter, I was like the people having a voice right. uh, bigger than they did earlier in their careers than they did uh, is one of the powerful forces that's turning things around. Mm-hmm. Uh, the solution ultimately needs to be we need representation at the senior boss levels. Um, yeah. I, I I relate to that. I mean, when I hear you still hear older comedians say, oh, less women want to be comedians. That's yeah. why there's less women comedians. I'm like, oh, you haven't been to like an open mic in 30 years. Yeah. You haven't been to an improv class. You haven't like actually met anyone who's trying to be a comedian because there's a million of them yeah. and they'll tell you what the issue is. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? They'll be like, yeah, it's tougher. And if you, and if you have those conversations, you understand that. Um, and you can like work to correct that. But if you're just like, you know, performing in theaters and bumping into people in the, you know, green rooms of late night talk shows, you might be like, oh yeah, what is no, no women around. I guess they just, uh, I guess they just don't feel like it. They you like, know? they like having babies and I don't know, <laughs> being crass. Uh, they're not here because they're doing, they want, they don't want to be here. They opted out. And I'm like, I love how I love how we've connected this to the original topic of yeah. like how you form that knowledge because it's it's what you what you experience um, has such a direct impact on the knowledge that is in your brain. Yes, that's that, that, that's that's it. That's exactly correct. Uh, it all loops around. Let's let's just go back to your field for for one last question. Sure. What are you What are you most excited about in the future of your field? There's so many open questions and what you're studying, um, but what what makes you really, 
really excited that like this is what's right over the horizon? Oh my goodness, so many things. Uh, I am very excited with uh, the new interest in uh, connecting AI research with human belief formation research. Mm -hmm. um, uh, AI is... Uh, is a field that's trying to create intelligence. You might think that they would be like better versed in psychology and cognitive science research and neuroscience research than they are. Um, but uh, there's been some borrowing and a little bit of crosstalk over the years. But AI and computer science up until very recently had been very, very separate. Uh, there's starting to be uh, more meaningful connections and collaborators between psychologists and neuroscientists and AI, re AI researchers. Uh, and why I think that's interesting is because uh, the big vision, if you want to create intelligence, um, uh, you want to create something that uh, is going to interface well with humans. I was like, you need to make sure that you're designing systems that are not going to accidentally amplify incorrect beliefs or biases mm -hmm. um, uh, that people will tend to have as they're interacting with things like Facebook and Google. Um, uh, but also, uh, you want to design intelligent systems that can do better than people do. Uh, how cool would it be um, to have a system that could alert you as to when you are maybe developing um, a premature certainty and should hold off for more information. Um, uh -huh. All of this is not, we're not near doing anything like this. Um, Self-driving cars uh, still can't tell um, uh, the difference, <laughs> still doesn't, still don't know um, that they need to like uh, press on the brakes um, <laughs> to not uh, kill for people. a toddler, but they had yeah. not, 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 not a bird. A bird will get out of the way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that we're not there yet, but um, thinking yeah. about people in formal terms and then designing systems that are influenced and better than people. You're blowing my mind because it's, it's like almost one of the strange things that human minds do is we create models of other minds, right? Yes. That like, here's a being that's acting in a certain way and I can expect it'll act in a certain way because it's got a mind in there too and I can make predictions about it. And a very basic one of those is, yeah, you don't need to hit the brakes when you're driving towards a pigeon. Right. Because you know that pigeons get out of the way, but you, you're like, cats, maybe I could hit a cat. You could and then a baby, I'm definitely going to hit, <laughs> right? And so for AI, it doesn't just need to model like, here's what I am approaching, which it's already bad at right. um, or not good enough for production currently. It also needs to model what other minds are going to do, what actions they might take, not to mention the minds in the other cars. Yeah. So you it's- don't, you, don't, you don't think about that as a theory of mind task, but it absolutely, it absolutely is. If you slam on the brakes for a bird, the driver behind you won't be expecting it and you will get yeah. in a car accident. And my God, we talk about self-driving cars a lot on this show, but it really ties back to everything that you said at the beginning because it's a situation where driving is a uh, is a sneakily, it seems like a rule-based system. Like, especially in the U.S., we do follow rules mostly. So it almost seems like it's just like logic gates opening and closing and like everybody's like following the rules, right? But then it's also happening in reality. Right. And as you've said, reality is almost infinitely detailed and an almost infinite number of strange things can happen yes. um, in reality that like because 
humans are attuned to reality. We, we were evolved to be in reality. We can often compensate for. There's like the long tail of edge cases of strange, spooky things that can happen. Uh, the different surface on the roads, you know, yeah. uh, like the, oh, it's slightly, uh, it, there was a slight misting of rain this morning. So my tires might work differently. Like all these different tiny little bits of information that are so difficult to program into an artificial intelligence. And I think that's something also interesting about artificial intelligence is that now the way that they create so many of them is via these neural networks yeah. and the people who create them actually don't know why they come up with the solutions that they come up with. Right. Right. I don't like, I was saying that too. And then I said that to Ode Oliver, who uh, is a professor at uh, MIT uh, and the, the the director of the MIT, the IBM Watson um, mm. uh, 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 research research uh, group over there, um, and she chastised me uh, because uh, I said I was like, "Oh, these 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 systems, they're black boxes," and she said, "Brains are black boxes, and that's what we do for a living is we probe them." Um, of course, you can uh, dive in and understand the black box, and to say that is kind of a cop out. So she's totally a hundred percent right. Um, I have since realized that these um, uh, you know deep learning is employing algorithms that people have sort of, when they've encountered a problem, thrown up their hands and said like, oh, too bad that this algorithm's being racist, but there's nothing that we can do about that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's that's not really... That's not really a thing. But uh, it's, it's it's opaque. But uh, but it's interesting that we're creating when you're saying the the confluence between artificial intelligence and and brains and like those researchers coming together. Right. When we're some of these artificial intelligence systems, we create them and then we actually need to study them to understand how they work. That's like, so cool. But yes, and yes. that is also true of brains. Yes. Um. So that might actually be. I'm a, I'm down on AI a lot on this show. And look. Honestly, that is what I am down on is corporate America claiming that AI can do things that it can't do. And in you should be down on that. That's yeah, exactly. It, I'm, I'm behind you. In ways that might hurt people, kill people, or make right. our lives worse. Right. Um, I think that I'm I'm down on the culture of the tech industry around AI. I'm not down on the research. The research right. is fascinating. Um, and so one of the most positive things you could say about it is that, like, what's proof that it's making advances? It's creating things that are approaching the complexity of our own brains in that we don't fucking understand them. Yeah. We don't understand our brains and we don't understand artificial intelligence. So in that way, artificial intelligence seems more human intelligent like <laughs> because we understand it less. <laughs> it's, we're, we're getting close. I think that I think you're totally right. I was like, that's a, that's a sign that, that we're making some kind of weird progress. Uh, our artificial intelligence systems also, uh, what they do depends upon the data that we give them. And there is no system that's taking in data and statistics from so many different places like humans do. And I think that's that's part of the uh, difficulty and also the interestingness uh, is, 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 is coming is coming from uh, that that nuance. Um, driving that it's interesting that you you gave up the self-driving cars uh, example. Uh, I find it interesting that like if there was going to be a rule of um, uh, a set of rules that you follow for driving, like maybe the DMV manuals would be, in those, mm -hmm. uh, I went to undergraduate in LA. I did my graduate degree in upstate New York at, um, uh, in Rochester, New York, near the Canadian border. Um, in both of those places, I checked the DMV manuals. They say approximately the same things for like how you should treat stop 
lights. Yeah. Uh, you should stop definitely when it's red. Um, and uh, when it's green, you go. And if it's yellow, uh, you should should slow and not go into the intersection. But people's actual behavior was totally different in those two places. Yes. Uh, in Rochester, New York. Do you know this? Because you were also in snowy places. I actually for never drove life. in New York. So, ah. yeah. So, when the light turns green in Rochester, New York, I just moved there from LA. Um, and I noticed immediately uh, that uh, when the light turns green, People don't go. They hang out for just a beat. And mm. uh, this was very frustrating for me. If you do that in L.A., you get honked at. Yes. Um, uh, in Rochester, it was clear that that was the standard. So I found myself sitting behind cars at green lights that wouldn't go for a moment. And then the snow started falling. And uh, I had the experience of driving again. Um, light turns green. Uh, the car in front of me didn't go. And uh, a car went like sliding through the intersection after because you can't stop suddenly when uh, there's when the roads are icy like you could in L.A. Uh, uh, it did not mention this in the New York State DMV manual. Um, but uh, everybody converged on uh, without, I think, any conscious realization, uh, the rule that you're not going to go as soon as you see it be green because you're going to see if there's a car that tried to stop that then slides through. Um, <laughs> uh, if you go it green, right. then you're going to hit them. You'll cause an accident. Everybody knows that. I don't think that it's conscious. Uh, everybody has learned from the statistics of yeah. their environment. And even though the rules that they were taught say the same thing um, uh, on that issue, uh, the behavior is totally different. And it's adaptive to uh, what is the best course of action given the environment. And this is why when people say, well, humans are such bad drivers. That's why we need AI as soon as possible. Well, actually, that is a very example of humans being especially skilled at this task, right? Because That's it's, it's a localized, specific piece of reality detail, this infinite detail that reality has that the cult, the driving culture of Rochester, New York has adapted for and like put in place a cultural norm, which resulted in loss of li uh, less loss of life more generally. That's that's right. That's um, right. And I, I worry about um, uh, the fact that there are so many of these instances. There's one that I noticed that's a difference in behavior um, from uh, people in Rochester, New York versus uh, people in L.A. that's clearly adapted to the circumstances of the locale. Uh, I don't know if people working on self-driving cars are aware of those differences. Uh, I don't know the degree to which those sort of differences might be integrated. If you have a self-driving car that was designed in LA that is interacting with human yes. drivers in Rochester, New York, uh, it's not going to behave in the same way that is in accordance with the expectations of the drivers around it. Right, and that's, tr I mean, Teslas are designed in, uh, in not quite Los Angeles, but in, in, the, in SoCal. Right. And uh, I'm sure there are Teslas in Rochester, New York, and right now they're just doing the, the lane assist, whatever, but that's, that, I mean, that's a real problem. I saw never, I never saw one. I was like, the, the, and I, I, I wonder, I like, I was looking, I was looking. Oh, there's some, oh, there's some, there's some rich guy in, some guy. Uh, in Rochester, New York, for yeah, sure. Yeah. But yeah, how, it, it's such an interesting question. How can, uh, like, a self-driving car also has to account for culture? You know, there's this right. wonderful book called Traffic uh, about how our traffic systems work. I'm blanking on the name of the author, but it's called Traffic. And he talks about traffic culture and how in the United States, people say, oh, people drive so crappy in L.A. or whatever. We actually have a very rule-following traffic culture. People stop for stoplights, even if you're driving at 2 a.m., the biggest asshole in America uh, at 2 a.m. in the middle of a country road sees no one coming for half a mile in any direction. 
direction will stop and wait for the green light, right? Yeah. It is a really built-in cultural norm. Other countries don't have that norm, right? Or not like some other countries don't have that norm. Um, and ones that don't have higher rates of traffic deaths, right? Or there's right. there's different ways. When I was in uh, Mumbai a number of years ago, the neighborhood I was in was um, the traffic culture was entirely, there were no signals of any kind. It was entirely is a car going to hit me? If no, if yes, I must stop. And if no, I can go. And it was entirely making eye contact with other people and saying, I'm going to go, right? Yeah. It was very touch and go. There was no rule following. Um, and uh, that is completely different, right? That, that culture affects so much. And it's another example of how much detail there is yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and how difficult that that is to handle. That is so fascinating to see how those two how, because uh, a factor, a fact of human brains is that they are social and that they communicate with each other and that we change our behavior based on what other human brains are doing. And so seeing how that interacts with artificial intelligence is, that is very exciting. Right. And, and I, uh, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as we're designing AI systems that are interacting with humans. Uh, I see a lot of, um, talk in papers that seems to suggest that the authors are are understanding people as largely being all approximately the same uh, mm -hmm. when that's really not true at not all. True it's like our, all. Our, our strength um, uh, as a species is that we um, can hyper specialize. Uh, we are we are substantially different from each other, even in domains where we like laid out a set of rules and they appear to match. Uh, there's a lot of diversity in terms of what we believe and what we believe directly impacts what we do yeah. and the AI systems um, uh, that are interacting with humans, it's very important that they take that under consideration. Well, your work is so fascinating. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk to us about it. Today. I love talking to you, Adam. I was like, <laughs> we're going to keep doing it. I was like, that's, that's, um, uh, so uh, this was, this was a pleasure. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for having me on. This was a really fun conversation. Thank you so much. I've had a blast. Well, thank you once again to Celeste Kid for coming on the show. I was fascinated by that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. That is it for us this week on Factually. I want to thank our producer, Dana Wickens, our engineer, Ryan Connor, our researcher, Sam Roudman, Andrew WK, for our theme song. You can follow me on Twitter at Adam Conover. You can sign up for my mailing list or uh, check out my tour dates at adamconover.net. And until then, we'll see you next week on Factually. Thank you so much for listening. Factually.